Tonight's gospel reading is from Luke, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. The word of the Lord. Pray that Jesus will heal his faithful servant. Pray. His voice was frail, a dry whisper. He was coming out of sedation, and I wasn't sure if he was completely coherent. The surgeon told the family that he had to do a quadruple bypass, and with someone my grandpa's age, we would have to see how much of his old self he would regain. I was a freshman in high school and had never been in a situation like this or this close to death or something this scary, someone I loved. My grandpa looked so small and weak in the bed. And I'm sure if he were not on some kind of drugs, he would not have liked us all in there, gathered around him, seeing him like that, because he did not like weakness, not in other people and not in himself. My grandpa Webb was impressed by powerful men, strong, in charge, money and power kind of men. And I don't think he thought of himself as a powerful man, but he liked to act like one sometimes. My mom says that he was really hard on her when they were growing up. She was the oldest and not a boy. There were no boys. She had two younger sisters, and she said she always felt like maybe she was continually being punished for not being a boy, a boy who could grow up into a powerful man. As long as I could remember, whenever my family would arrive at my grandma and grandpa Webb's house, the first thing my grandpa would say to my mom was something about her weight, like, looks like you put on a pound or two since I saw you last, always with a sharp smile on his face. And whether she was overweight or not, she wasn't. But she never believed it. She still doesn't. Even 
when he acted that way, kind of mean or tough, I didn't believe him. Even as a kid, it seemed to me like it hurt him in some way, somehow, to put that act on, that mean, tough act. When Grandpa said, pray that Jesus will heal his faithful servant, pray in that hospital bed that day, the phrasing seemed a bit formal for him. But I held his hand and I said, don't worry, Grandpa, I will pray for you. Jesus will heal you. I caught a sort of heartbroken look from my mom that confused me. He spoke again, pray that great man of God, the great and powerful man of God, pray that God will heal him. That really seemed out of character for my Grandpa Webb. I didn't know if he was delusional, but my mom put my hand her hand on my shoulder and bent her head close to mine. He means the president, she said. It was April 2nd, coincidentally, my grandpa's birthday in 1981, and Ronald Reagan had been shot three days earlier by John Hinckley, and my grandpa was worried about him. I don't care about the president, I said. Besides, he seems to be doing fine. Grandpa's the one here. He almost died. I think Jesus should focus here. Reagan will be fine. I already had a list of reasons to dislike Ronald Reagan. But my grandpa loved him. Loved him. I said a little prayer to myself. I wouldn't say it was exactly against Reagan getting better, but maybe more in the vein of making it clear that Jesus um, should be putting his healing priorities here. Franklin Lee Webb was born in Oak Grove, Missouri in 1916. From the family stories, his dad Elmer was as mean as you can imagine a mean dad could be growing up in the Depression, with the farm failing, the soil blowing away, black storms roiling through everything. I think a lot got taken out on your grandpa, my mom told me on the phone after I called her about this. Your great-grandma tried to protect him and eventually got some money for him from some family members on her side to help enroll him in this airplane mechanic school so he could get away. It was the Missouri Aviation Institute in Kansas City. It was one of many schools the government subsidized to provide training for placement in the airplane factories in California. Two and a half million people had fled the Dust Bowl states by 1940, with nearly a quarter of a million of them ending up in California, looking for work and some kind of life. But they didn't really need any more farmers in California. The idea with the aviation school was to give these young farm kids training in an industry that was actually growing and needed skilled workers. So he went through this training, and he got a letter of introduction and along with his brother and the letter in his pocket, my grandpa headed for California. I don't know if I'm getting my grandpa's story mixed up with the grapes of wrath, but I'm pretty sure I remember that it was that letter that got him past the armed roadblocks set up on the California border um, to keep those Okies from coming in. I guess it separated him from every other Tom, Dick, and Harry Jode. He had prospects. Upon his arrival in San Diego, he was hired by Consolidated Aircraft. 
and working for consolidated aircraft kept him out of the war. He was deferred. They needed skilled workers to keep building planes. And it also paid him enough to start a family. And by 1949, he moved them to the, a trailer out in the wild country of El Cajon, California, outside of San Diego. It was one thing for my grandpa to be impressed by powerful men. But as I looked at the text for today, I was baffled to find Jesus' infatuation with this powerful man in this text. He's a Roman centurion. This Roman centurion has this valuable slave who's fallen ill. And so he sends these Jewish elders to Jesus, doesn't even go himself, and says, look, we can vouch for this guy. He is the one that gave us the money to build the synagogue. You should really help him out. And Jesus says, okay, let's go and see the slave. But then the Roman centurion, this powerful man who leads this army, who has this money and power, he sends other servants and says to tell Jesus, look, don't even come here because I am in charge of all kinds of men. I tell my slave, do this, do that, and they do everything I say. So if you just say that they'll be healed, I know that my slave will be healed and you don't even need to come here. And Jesus is super impressed. <laughs> Jesus is super impressed with this guy and how much power he has. You can see it in this story that he's this guy. He, just, he can say he helped build the synagogue. He says to his slaves, do this, do that, and they just do it. And um, this is, Jesus sees this as faith that he says, you don't even need to come to me. And Jesus is so impressed by this that he restores the slave to this Roman centurion and says, not anywhere in all of Israel have I ever seen faith like this. What, what is with this, what's the slave going to do now? Like, why is it, I think Jesus is missing uh, the person here who he should be helping out. I mean, he's so impressed by the centurion's faith that he restores this valuable piece of his property so he can go on slaving more. For Jesus, a lot of times Jesus is helping those poor and needy people. I like those times. I don't like Jesus, who was impressed by this powerful man. And even when you look in the history of the interpretation of this, it's like you can tell Luke seems to kind of be laying, putting the, uh, putting the bricks in place uh, for impressing the Romans as this Christianity grows ugly. Powerful men. Anyway, my grandpa only ever gave me two things. One was his union worker study Bible, and the other was a .30-06 rifle. The union worker study Bible I found in his workshop. I stopped by to see him on my way home from seminary one time when I was in Berkeley. And I was going down to my parents' house in Brawley at Christmas break. And like I always do when I went through there by San Diego, by El Cajon, I visited him. And whenever I visit him, we go out and we do what he calls walking the land. That's where we uh, get up and we just walk around his property. 
and he just shows me everything. Same things over and over again that I've always seen, but maybe um, like we walk around his property and we survey the place and he shows me his new vegetables or his flowers that he had planted or he points out how a particular tree was coming along or a, how a repair was holding up. And I'd always assumed that this routine was a holdover from generations and generations of Missouri farmers. Like it was just what you did every day to keep an eye on things. It was just like an everyday farmer job. You know, I don't know how big the farm was he grew up on in Missouri, but the land we walked in Al Cajon, California, was one acre. And when my grandpa bought it in 1949, it was way off in the country. But in the 90s, when I was out there, it was just a semi-crappy suburb of San Diego. There was a routine to my visits with my grandpa. I'd pull up and he'd bring me in. He'd make some joke about Berkeley and he couldn't quite remember if that was Sodom or Gomorrah. If, he could straight, if I could straighten it out for him, he thought it was funny. We'd sit down and he'd pet the dog and stare at me and then slap his knees and say, well, I guess we better get up and go have a look around. So we'd go out through the kitchen, and he would say to my grandma, Mother, we're going to go for a bit of a walk. And so we'd go out into the breezeway, they called it, um, where there was a table with a few old hats among pruning shears, work gloves, old glass bottles, and plants he was starting. And he would pick up a greasy, well-worn feed cap, knock the dust off it with a slap to his thigh, and hand it to me. You better put this on. I would take it and nod, yep, I'd think to myself, trying to get the accent right. He would pick up his hat, brush it off, brush off the brim and put it on. I assume the hat was for the sun, but it wasn't always sunny. I think it was more just, you know, that one wore a hat when they went out into the fields and walked the land. Just like you never wear a cap inside, you always wear a cap when you walk the land. And walking the land always ended up in his workshop. And it was, the first thing my, it was the first thing my grandpa had built when he bought the land. Uh, before they even moved out onto it, he built the workshop. And then he used that to build the outhouse. And then he bought a small trailer and moved my grandma and my 12-year-old mother and her two little sisters from the rented house in Ocean Beach into the trailer on his own land. Next, he built the garage, moved the family in there, sold the trailer, and started working on the house. He was building something, something of his own. The workshop was like an old barn with a shack attached to it, and there were rooms full of things he was planning on fixing one day, or that he couldn't bear to get rid of, because you never know what you might need. On this particular visit, while he was showing me a drawer with broken and rusty harmonicas and leatherworking tools in it, I noticed a book wrapped in plastic on the shelf above the workbench. What's that, I ask? He looked at it, paused, and took it down from the shelf. He started unwrapping it before he started speaking. This, he pulled it free from the plastic, took out his handkerchief and wiped it down on all sides and held it out to me laying flat on the palm of his hand. This is the Bible that was given to me when I first got out here. I took it and read the cover. You, the Union Study Bible.
I paged through it, and it appeared to be just that. There were verses highlighted with notes about brotherhood and labor and laborers and God blessing the work of our hands. There were passages underlined in pencil with notes written in the margins. I would have guessed my grandpa was in a union. He had to be. He worked in an airplane factory, and he was a glazer after that in the first half of the 20th century. Everybody was in union. But as long as I was old enough to understand things like liberal and conservative, I had known that my grandpa was over-the-top right-wing Republican. He had a picture of Ronald Reagan on his mantle. I don't know what was more shocking to imagine that my grandpa used to go to union Bible studies or that unions used to have Bible studies. Would you like to have that, he said, a little quieter than he usually speaks? I would, I told him. He turned his head to one side, nodded, then handed me the plastic wrapping and the Bible. The 36, .30-06 rifle was different. It just came in the mail one day. I knew so little about guns or gun owning that when the long rectangular box came for me with my grandpa's return address on it, I could not imagine what was in it. I, I opened it. What is it? Jeannie asked. I was astonished. A gun, I said. I called my brother Mike. Guess what I just got in the mail from Grandpa? A gun, he said. Yeah. He said, yeah, I got one too. So did Matt and Dad. Evidently, my Grandpa had read in some fundamentalist Christian pro-militia sort of version of the National Enquirer that the state of California was going to start going door-to-door -door collecting people's guns. So he mailed them out of state, one to each of his grandsons and his son-in-law for safekeeping. In the bottom of the box, the gun box, the bo box the gun came in, was this velvety box with this metal in it and a note. I have it here. The note said, keep it safe. I looked at this and wondered what kind of thing this could be. Maybe bullets or something? And as I open this thing, I will show it to you now. This is a medal which is given to my grandfather by President Ronald Reagan himself. And it goes to prove that he is a member of the Republican Presidential Task Force. It's a very special honor, I'm sure, that cost my grandfather a lot of money. When I think of this gun, and I think of this medal, I think of this medal, I've seen it before, sitting on his mantle next to that picture of Ronald Reagan. And then I think of that Union Study Bible. And I think this guy who comes from nothing, on the one hand, found this brotherhood, found these people who helped him out, found some, something in this scripture, obviously. 
but then somehow later on finds this verse, maybe, where Jesus admires the important men. What did... My grandpa wouldn't spend money on anything. So I wonder, what did it do for him to have this strange, ridiculous connection to this rich and powerful man? Did he do it because it made him feel bigger? Or was it because he felt so small? My sister didn't get a gun. She said she didn't really want one, but it was still unfair.